0: Ephesians 4, starting in verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. I'm thankful that I get to speak to you guys, and I'm thankful that you guys are here after uh, what I hope was a good holiday week. Personally, I love Thanksgiving. I feel like we overdid it a little bit. We had Thanksgiving again last night, so I kind of woke up waddling which is a little bit of my own fault there. But um, it's a treat for me because I think of the joy it is to be here. I don't have to travel anymore. It felt like every time I did Thanksgiving in the past, um, being in Missouri, having to come back home was a long trek if we did Thanksgiving here, or we would go see Hannah's folks. But it's nice to just have folks in our home and celebrate and do that. And so this week while I was preparing, while I was looking at this passage in Ephesians, I kept thinking about my family and my older brother, Drew, just kept coming to my mind. So when we were kids, um, Drew was kind of, there's no other way to say it. He was just kind of rotten. He was, right? We were always fighting. Um, he was sitting on somebody's head, you know, like seat belts were, were flung at each other. He just had this intense rage. It seemed like Drew couldn't figure out how to get out of his own way right? That was his issue. Now, fast forward, and here we are. We're celebrating. Drew's coming home now uh, from college, and he comes home, and there's something that's incredibly different about him. He's smiling. He's gracious. He's patient. And Drew tells us that he realized that even though he grew up in the church, even though he grew up surrounded by, you know, God-loving parents, even though he seemed to have everything together, he was never actually a believer, He'd even gone to Bible college, and he realized he didn't actually know Jesus. And it wasn't until he actually encountered him and encountered the gospel that his life was transformed. He realized that he was living according to religion, not the gospel. Now, religion, it's not what we would think it is, right? Religion says this, I obey, therefore I am accepted. That's not the gospel, right? It's this idea that you do good things, you don't do the bad things, then God will embrace you. That's not how the gospel works. Here's how the gospel works. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I will obey. Right? I'm accepted, therefore I will obey. We're welcomed, not because we've done good things, but because Jesus has. We come knowing that he has died for the bad things that we've done, that God embraces us in Christ, My brother Drew had been radically transformed by this reality. And that's what we see in our passage this evening. A life that is transformed. Now again, it's important for us to understand the context of our passage and the context of Ephesians in general. Paul's writing to young churches in and around Ephesus. And he spends, again, the first three chapters gushing about the gospel, right? We've been walking through this. We've seen that. And we have to remember what the gospel is. That the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the son of God, died for our sins and rose again eternally triumphant over all of his enemies so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe but only everlasting joy. That's the gospel. And Paul really, really, really wants his readers to understand this good news. And so he hammers this long before he tells us what we're supposed to do with it. So finally, in chapter 4, we get to his imperatives or his commands for us. And so again, we, we looked uh, just a minute ago, Josh read for us our passage from Ephesians 4. We jump back into 24 just to give us a little bit of context as we walk through 32. Now, before I start kind of dissecting this and walking through this, I want to give you guys a refresher. If you remember way back in the first sermon in Ephesians, I talked about our need for gospel grammar. Okay, now before you glaze over and go, okay, what? Just bear with me, remember, Paul starts with an indicative before he gets to any kind of imperative, all right? So remember this gospel grammar lesson. Indicatives, pointing something out. This is a stage, right? Imperatives, get up on this stage. It's a command. So it's the difference between who we are and what we're called to do. Do you get that? Right? Paul calls us saints at the beginning of Ephesians. This is who we are on the basis of Jesus's finished work. And Paul's going to hammer this over and over. Again, what was the only thing we're told to do in the first three chapters? Remember. Remember. The only imperative in the first three chapters of Ephesians is just remember. Paul keeps gushing about the gospel, gushing about all that God has done for us in Jesus. And so again, we must remember good theology, that we are to be before we do. We are to be before we do. The point is the power to do the imperative is to believe the indicatives. I can only do what I'm called to do because of who I'm called to be. Now this is important, right? Because if we get mixed up in this, it's really easy to kind of almost have gospel amnesia and forget the first three chapters of Ephesians, right? And then we get to chapter four and we're like, got it. Do this, do this, don't do that. And we start thinking that that is a life lived for Christ. It's not. That is a life of religion. And again, we live in the South where therapeutic, moralistic deism reigns. That's what sociologists call the church culture within the South. This idea that we need to be good people and we can only be good people if we do good things, if we do what we're told. But the thing is, if we only ever talk about imperatives, if all we ever talk about is here's all I should do and here's all I shouldn't do, and we don't get to the source, why? why should we do these things? Then we get two problems. Again, the first is this. We strengthen our work's righteousness muscle. We think that we make ourselves righteous, but we've talked about this a lot. The idea that you and I, we don't make ourselves righteous. Jesus makes us righteous. He says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So we don't make ourselves righteous. Jesus does, which brings us to the second problem we are robbing ourselves of the power that we must have in order to do what God has called us to do. This is a recurring theme in Ephesians that we are to remember who we are. If we're gonna do the things that God has called us to do, we have to remember who he's called us to be. And that is a beloved child of the king. If you are a Christian, your identity is in Christ. It's not in your performance It's not in your popularity, it's not in your productivity, it's not in your prominence. It is in Jesus. And Paul tells us here that we are now new creations. That we put off the old man and that we put on the new man. He gets to our imperative, what it is we're supposed to be doing, and we jump right in. And the first thing we see is that we are to replace lying with the truth. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, all of us have lied. Admittedly, I'm a terrible liar. Right? So funny story, when I was in fourth grade, they made us take a test where we had to do all of the states and capitals. Right? And so not only do they do that, which is cruel enough, um, they then make us spell them correctly. So your boy Bill can't spell. All right? So here's what happened. I got every single state right, every single capital, gravy, misspelled all 50, literally all 50 of them. I don't even know how you do that. I did. So I am embarrassed. I am in shame and in mourning. I get this test. I'm supposed to take it home and my mom's supposed to sign it. So I come home and my mom fortunately is bad with what day it was and said, hey, we should study for that test that's coming up. And I think to myself, bingo, got it. And I just said, yes, mother. Shall we study for this test? Let's, let us do this. This is a great idea you have. And so I studied for a test that I had already failed. Then in my brilliant fourth grade mind, I thought, you know what a good idea is? So I can really get out of this is I will sign my mother's name and they'll never know. I don't know about you guys, but as a fourth grader, I had the worst handwriting on the planet. I don't know what or why I thought this was a good idea. Alas, I did. And sure enough, it ended in me being severely punished, right? I totally got exposed. The whole thing went sour. Absolutely. Now, that's funny, but we live in a world where lying is normal, right? That's the world we live in. People embellish resumes. People plagiarize papers. They call in sick when they're anything but that. Where people endorse products they've never used, they pass off ghost-written articles as if they're their own. But as believers, are we any different? Are we? Paul says that if we are in Christ, we have to put falsehood away. That our word has to mean something. We must speak the truth with one another. Now, some of us, we lie like we're breathing, right? Maybe it's just a defense mechanism, but we can deceive people so easily. We have to put that to death, y'all. We do. For others of us, uh, we spread falsehood in more subtle ways, right? We tell half-truths to one another. We exaggerate stories that we share. Um, We portray ourselves in the best possible light. Uh, Instagram stories, Facebook, you know what I'm talking about. You know, everybody's out at the tree lot, and we're like, we're having a great time. But really, the kids are fighting. Everything's going haywire. Someone forgot to get gas. But it's like, best life, and it's just a lie. It is. We leave out key details intentionally. We bend, we twist the truth, and we spend everything to make us look really good. Quorum Deo, we're no longer who we once were. We can't keep lying to each other. Paul says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And he gives us the reason for why we're supposed to do this. For we are members one of another. Listen, Quorum we are all parts of a body that's meant to work together. How can we lie to each other? How can we lie? How can we lie and still be a healthy body? We just can't. The head can't deceive the feet. The heart can't deceive the hands. And here's another important thing to remember. Our God is a God of truth. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Jesus calls himself in John fourteen six the way, the truth, and the life. How can we lead our brothers and neighbors down the wrong path? How can we give them anything other than the truth? How can we spread death instead of life? We can't, we can't. So Paul starts here looking at our words and then he turns to our temper, our temper. The second thing is that our anger is to be righteous. Again, verse 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now clearly, this reminds us that it's possible to be angry and not sin. Right? There's a such thing as a righteous indignation where we see things that are unjust and we act to protect the vulnerable and the innocent. In those times it would be even sinful to not be angry, right? We should be enraged at sex trafficking. We should be infuriated by that. But we, we see this example in Jesus, right? He, he runs into the temple, flipping over the tables, whipping people. Now, that is not a, a, an application point, right? Don't go home and whip people. That's not the point. The point is actually this. We should be angered by what angers God, yes. But you and I have to be very careful because you and I are not God. We're not. Often our anger is based in selfishness, right? Maybe on the way here, someone cut you off and you're like, I hope you die. Like, maybe that was you. Maybe that's your anger, And that's Paul's point. What he's saying is this, watch out for sinful anger. Don't let it overtake you. It doesn't fit with the renewed you. That when you experience anger, deal with it and do it now. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do everything you can to deal with it today. Don't delay or else. See, anger has this way of festering, of growing into bitterness and rage. My wife and I—we have different ideas of what it looks like to clean. You know, for me, I clean as it's convenient. My idea is nobody's coming over till the weekend. Let's clean then. And, of course, that's the wrong idea, right? Hannah is more like, hey, let's clean as we go. You know, you dirty a dish, you wash a dish. Those of you with dishwashers, like, celebrate God's kindness to you and and, and know my poverty, okay? We don't have that, right? We got to hand wash everything. That's what we do. So she's thinking, let's clean as we go so it's not so overwhelming in the long run. But here's the deal. Again, I'm obviously the one wrong in this situation. But imagine every time you cooked that you just left ingredients on the counter. And if you cook like I cook, that's a mess. and then you just start leaving all your dishes in the sink. The dishes keep piling up and so you have to put them on the end table. You got dishes on your coffee table. It's a mess. You never clean up and sooner or later it's gonna be not only really gross, it's gonna be overwhelming. It's better to do it today before the day is over because it's not going anywhere. It's still going to be there tomorrow if you don't deal with it. And the Lord is telling us, seek reconciliation with one another Don't let anger control you. We should reconcile with a sense of urgency. We should make things right and we should do it now. Otherwise, bitterness starts to grow and grow and we find ourselves stewing and seething and when we finally decide, you know what? I gotta clean this mess up. We don't even know where to start. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Deal with it now. Why? Well, verse 27 tells us, and give no opportunity to the devil. Another thing that Hannah and I struggled with early in our marriage was locking the door. So I grew up again. We had woods around us. We knew our neighbor. Everything was gravy, right? So we never locked the door, ever. It was always open. Now, some of you know where my mom lives. I think she locks the door now, so, you know, don't get any ideas or anything. But the idea is this. We just, we felt comfortable and safe. Hannah had the opposite reality. So they were robbed when she was little. So they locked the door all the time. And she's extreme about it. I mean, she'll be taking groceries in and be like, well, I can't take all the bags. I'll just close it, lock it, and I'll come back. It's like, okay, let's relax. You'll be able to get it. Nobody's going to run over and be like, ha I got your milk. I don't know. That's just the difference between us. So when we first got married, I would forget to lock the door. And she just didn't understand it. She's still to this day, like every night before we go to bed, she you lock the door? Did you? Did you really? And so I have to check because inevitably sometimes I'm like, oh yep, I forgot. Hannah would get so frustrated by this. She would they say things like, you might as well just kick open the door and be like, hey robbers, come on in. Come steal all of our stuff. That's what we do. When you and I don't deal with our anger, we're just leaving the door unlocked, wide open, inviting Satan to come in and work. We're giving him an opportunity The Lord has made us a part of the body. Again, remember, Ephesians 4 up to this point has been pushing and talking about this idea that we are united, that we have unity. He calls us to maintain that unity. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy it. When you're frustrated with somebody, as Matthew 18 says, go to that person. And when you know someone's frustrated with you, as Matthew 5 teaches us, go to that person. Do it before the calendar flips, otherwise you're daring Satan to destroy us. So Paul keeps going and he says this, third, theft is replaced with generosity. Theft is replaced with generosity. The one who ha- this one, it does not just with stealing, but with our work. So it says this in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Stop stealing, start working. Pretty clear, right? Now, I don't want to rule out that there might be someone in here who's tempted to shoplift or maybe to rob a gas station with a sword. I don't know you, right? I don't know your life. I don't know what's going on in there. But most of us are tempted towards a more subtle kind of stealing, right? We don't have a problem not reporting our tips. We don't have a problem paying someone under the table. Maybe we borrow someone's Netflix, Or maybe it's Disney Plus now. I don't know. You guys could be cooler than me. Maybe we use somebody else's Wi-Fi connection. Maybe we borrow things and never return them. Maybe we download movies or software without paying. Or maybe we don't tip. We neglect to tip when deep down we really know that that's actually part of the cost of the meal. Perhaps we park in parking spots that are not ours. Maybe we hobble in like maybe they'll think I'm handicapped. Come on. We take advantage of insurance companies, we try to get out of bills, we try to get out of of fees, and of course, one of the main ways we steal is from the workplace. Employees steal all the time, right? They steal office supplies, they misuse expense accounts, they manipulate time clocks, they abuse sick days. More than that, they post on social media all day long instead of doing work. Now, maybe you've never embezzled funds, but you've likely stolen from your boss, you have. And the Lord says for us here to do labor, to do honest work with our hands. Here's the deal. Work in and of itself is actually part of God's good creation. Toil is the result of the fall in Genesis, but Adam was to work the garden before sin ever entered the world. So you and I as we do honest work with our mind, with our hands, we are imaging the good God who made everything and who controls everything right now. So We live as we are created to live. And here's the deal. One day when we're in the new heavens and new earth, we will likely be working. It's a good thing. He gives us vocations. We live them out. We work. Listen to the reason that Paul gives for working and not stealing. It says in verse 28, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Absolutely. Working puts food on your table, right? It provides for your immediate family, but it is also given so that you and I can care for the needy. We can care for those in our church family. We can care for those in our city that if we're in Christ, man, we can't steal. We can't just sit around. No, we're new. We're new. God wants us to labor and then to share. He goes on to his next challenge, and it's this. Cursing is replaced with blessing. Cursing is replaced with blessing. Verse 29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So my wife Hannah loves to compost. Um, it's great, it eliminates trash, helps us to cultivate a garden. Fantastic. However, it can get really nasty, okay? One time we had a bunch of flies, and I was wondering, hey, what's going on here? I'm wondering what's happening. And I open up our little compost under the sink, and sure enough, maggots. Fantastic. That's what I want in my kitchen. Delicious wonderful maggots. Great. It smelled disgusting and I was ready to berate her for her gross hippie ways. Like can't we just throw stuff away like normal people? Like why do we got to do this? But again hold on for a minute. Picture with me that rotting disgusting compost with maggots swimming in it. That is the picture that Paul gives us here for this word corrupting. It's a word that refers to things that are decaying, things that are putrid. God says, don't let disgusting, decaying stuff come out of your mouths. That stuff doesn't belong there, right? Now, that sounds easy enough, but really it isn't. Too often, we vent things out. We say things that hurt. We do. Oftentimes, we're just flat out mean. Maybe we speak falsehood about a person, or maybe... We speak the truth, but we don't do it in love. We say things that don't fit with who we are in Christ. We talk like we're on Satan's team. Now, maybe you've, ever, maybe you've said, oh, I'm just joking, but you know, deep, deep down, you're in the wrong. It's also common that because we have freedom in Christ, you know, we can just talk like a sailor. Every foul word is allowed. Every perverse joke is okay, and if you question it, well, then you're accused of being a prude, you're a legalist. Rotten talk is passed off as it's not a big deal for a Christian. But listen, neither cutting somebody down or cursing up a storm fits with who we now are. Our words should not smell like rotten compost. They should have the aroma of Christ. Listen to the calling that Jesus has given us. This is his call. Build one another up build each other up. That's what it says, that we're to give timely, helpful words. We're supposed to give grace. What's the purpose of our speech? It's to bless God and to bless others. Anything outside of that is not fitting for a believer, period. Think about also how our Lord uses speech. He speaks and what does he do? He creates. He speaks life. He causes life to grow. God does the opposite through his word of decay. He gives life. That's what he calls us to do with our words as well. And finally, Paul, he gets to our last challenge that's closely related. And that's that hatred is replaced with kindness. Hatred is replaced with kindness. Ephesians 4 Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here the apostle starts heaping phrase upon phrase to describe all kinds of interpersonal foolishness and wickedness that tear churches apart. Bitterness refers to hateful resentment and Wrath refers to raging. Anger speaks of seething. Slander refers to destroying others' reputations. Malice refers to seeking the downfall of others. And maybe you'd say you don't struggle with these things at all, but they're everywhere within the world, within our culture. And they all too often seep within the walls of the church. I mean, just to be honest, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, that just sounds like Facebook to me. I don't know about you guys. Again, I've mentioned this before. I'm on a group called Let's Talk Burke County, and that's all it is. Let's just hate life, Burke County. Everybody's like, this is the worst. You're the worst. This person did this thing, and that's just one group. All of it, it seems to be this just outrage culture where far too often people are finding meaning in what other people think about them or politics, and both sides have spewed so much hatred, so much vitriol that it's hard to discern who's actually following the way of Jesus anymore. Even directly within the church, I've seen Christians do things where they'll say, you know, hey, I just really want to talk to you about something. I've got this issue going on with so-and-so, and I just really need to process it with you. I just want to work through it. You know, we do it under the guise of I'm getting wisdom or I was seeking counsel, when in reality, it's gossip, right? A skunk by any other name still stinks. It does. The Lord wants so much better for us than this. The Lord wants so much more. He wants these behaviors replaced with, catch this, kindness. Kindness with compassion and with forgiveness. He wants us to live transformed lives. The gospel, it leads to changed conduct. Picture the guy who has this old, gross flannel shirt. It's got holes in it. You know, maybe he's like, I killed my first deer in it and it smells like it too. You know, it's this gross shirt, but it's comfortable. He loves to wear it and it's his favorite shirt, but he throws it away. Why? Because he loves his wife and she hates it, right? She didn't marry a bum. The Lord says here, take off those old rags. Get that junk off of you. It doesn't look right. But we have to ask the question, why? Why do we obey, right? We can't just focus on the behavior again. God's not out to make a better you. He's out to make a new you, an entirely new creation. We have to ponder our motivation. Why do we seek to put to death our old ways? Because as new creations, we live a transformed life. Here's the thing, telling the truth, handling our anger rightly, generosity, blessing, kindness, this feels like pretty basic stuff. But the reality is, this is what a radically transformed life looks like. Maybe as we've walked through these different things, you've thought, man, I do that. Guilty of that. Definitely guilty of that. My my hope is that you would not think that the application of this sermon is, don't be a bad person, just start being a good person. It's that you would see the call of each of these commands, these imperatives, and you would realize, Lord, had it not been for you, making me a saint, calling me new, I couldn't have a hope in the world to do any of the things that you're calling me to do. And even now, as you hear this call, this command to walk in these ways, you feel this tension to think, man, I can't do this. That person's a jerk. You want me to be kind to them? That person's the worst. Here's the call. You can't. I can't. We desperately, definitively need Jesus. On our own volition, Time after time, we will fail. You and I need the gospel. We need the good news that God is transforming us, that he is wooing us, calling us to look more and more like him and less and less like this world. Imagine a place with me where you don't have to lie. You see, the thing is, it's not that we can't do these things. It's not that, hey, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. It's that we don't need to do these things. Imagine this place. You don't have to lie. You don't have to use your words to try to win the approval of people around you. You don't have to put on a mask and act like someone you're not. God knows you. He accepts you. And so do those around you. Imagine a place where you don't have to rage. You don't have to prove yourself to those around you. You don't have to fight for your honor. You are in a house of grace that when you stumble, you can still sleep well because you know there is forgiveness for you. Imagine a place where you don't have to steal. You don't have to cheat. You don't have to just think about getting yours. There are other people who are concerned with your needs and you're also concerned about theirs. Imagine a place where you don't have to tear down Why? Because the people around you are for you. They're not your enemies. They want to build you up. They want to give you grace. And you want to do the same for them. Imagine a place where you don't have to fight all the time. You're not on the defensive and you're not on the offensive. You can just relax and be loved and love others. See, it's not that you don't get to. It's that you and I don't have to. The church is meant to be a family where we can rest in our identity in Christ. And what a culture that is. It's a culture that will outlast all others. It's called the kingdom of God. Now, again, we're not a perfect family. Not at all. A healthy body isn't one without illnesses and diseases. It's just one that deals with those diseases. That's the way it is in a healthy church. We work through our struggles in a godly, loving way. What if our city looked at our church, looked at Coram Deo, and saw our life together and saw something different? What if they saw a transformed life? What if they saw different conduct, a different culture, a city of grace? And what a gospel story that would tell! Verse twenty-three says that we should be renewing ourselves in the spirit of the in the spirit of our minds. It says, "Be renewed in the spirit of your mind." So, how are you renewing your minds? I said this last week and I'll say it again, far too often we let culture shape us. From the minute we wake up, we are being just consumers, right? We wake up, we turn our alarm clock off and many of us just start scrolling right away. We're checking our Instagram feed, we're on Twitter, we're seeing what happened in the world, we're cutting the news on and we're just ingesting all of this stuff. And what spews out of us is the old man. What if instead we committed to say, you know what, when I wake up in the morning, turn my alarm off, and I'm gonna sit in silence before the Lord, and I'm gonna just feast on his word. What if we did that? What if we allowed God to shape us as his people that we would then strive to take off the old man, put on the new man, and walk in this newness of life knowing full well that we will slip, we will stumble, we will fall, but thanks be to God that we have a Savior who forgives us, gives us grace, and makes us new. My hope is that we would be this new man, this new one this new creation living a transformed life displaying to the world the goodness of our king let's pray together heavenly father we are so grateful for this hope that you have called us lord not into not into performance not into doing more trying harder being better but you have called us to see that you are better that you are the hope of the ages that you have given us joy beyond joy. Lord, I pray that we would believe this truth, that we would know the goodness of the gospel, that we would know, God, that you have made all things in us new. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we forget the hope of Jesus, that we forget the goodness and mercy of our King. And would we be a people, Lord, that walk according to your will and your ways. God, we are so grateful for the hope that you've given us in Jesus. We're so thankful for the joy that we have in knowing you and in walking with you. We pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name, amen.